The 2016 elections made people worry about election integrity. On the left, there was deep anxiety about less than 100,000 votes in three swing states, many of which may have been influenced by Russian-generated Facebook ads. On the right, unsubstantiated accusations of voter fraud by, quote, millions of illegal immigrants, even though nonpartisan think tanks like the Brennan Center for Justice have found only a handful of cases of impersonation, list maintenance issues, or non-citizen voting. But neither fake news nor fake fraud worry people like Emily Sokolov and other on-the-ground activists who work in voter registration and election protection year after year. Well, I am worried about um, the sort of bean-counting, logarithm-driven approach to um, electoral politics. In fact, experts tell us, the greatest threat to election integrity isn't Russian bots or non-citizens in the voting booths. It's our own fears about security and the way our fears have been used to distract, discourage, and exclude. My name is Allison Konoski. I'm an assistant professor of American Studies at California State University, Fullerton, and I'm originally from Freeport, Illinois. Professor Kanoski studies how security came to be a national preoccupation, because it wasn't always this way. Our focus on national security dates back to the end of World War II. The U.S. had put an enormous amount of resources into building infrastructure, factories, military bases to support the war effort. And then it was over. After 1947, there is longer, more permanent infrastructure that makes it possible for the United States to always be ready for the next war, to not kind of de-escalate our military capacity in the same way. With the dawn of the Cold War in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the global political map changed. In 1947, people were constricting big bombs, explosives. This was kind of the focus of what it looked like to fight a war in 1947. Now the switch begins to be focused more on surveillance, more on trying to um, get intelligence. And then came 9-11, and the global political map changed again to focus on external enemies who might infiltrate the U.S. seeking its harm. So much of the fear about the potential for people who wish the United States harm to do that harm, that gets focused on the borders of the United States. And 9-11 occurs right in the midst of the height of this prison building boom and incarceration boom in the domestic U.S. that had been really building up since the 1970s and especially since the 1980s. And together, the long hangover from World War II and the Cold War, new emphasis on surveillance and border control and prison building all come together to give us a national infrastructure preoccupied with security. The idea infrastructure of war, an infrastructure built in American minds through our political culture, stays around as well. There's looking outward, you know, is the threat coming from 
longstanding um, uh, relationships and uh, tensions that never were quite resolved in the Cold War? Does it come from individuals who get across the border, who infiltrate the country in order to um, dilute the power of the country? Which brings us to today, our decades-old preoccupation with national security bleeds over into the way we see election security, focusing us on two threats, the external, Russians, bots, fake news, and the internal, immigrant voter fraud. But this preoccupation with security has costs. In kind of focusing on these two um, sources of the threat, um, we're put into a language of fear. We're put into a language uh, or to, into a conversation where we're being told that some specific person or some specific entity um, is the enemy and is the threat, and that we have a narrow choice of how to respond in order to minimize that threat. According to Professor Kanoski, preoccupation with national security and enemies keeps us from seeing what we have in common. Fear divides us, and it costs us. If you go to rural Northwest Illinois, the area where I did my dissertation research, and you talk to people in communities there, they have so very much in common with the people who live, the um, predominantly people of color who live in downtown New Haven, where I went to graduate school. There are more shared interests and shared concerns and shared threats to their economic, physical, emotional, and um, I, I don't know if there's another, like environmental well-being than there are differences. But these are populations that don't encounter one another frequently, are spoken about as though their interests are completely exclusive of one another. And so when we see the threat as coming from without, um, it makes us not understand how our own divisions undermine our ability to use the power of the people to make changes in this country that are or in line with well-being as a whole. And when we get so hung up on chasing enemies, we lose sight of the everyday work we need to do to maintain and nourish our democracy. I think that you really cannot sustain a healthy democracy on fear. It doesn't work. And what actually sustains a healthy democratic society is providing opportunities and reducing structural inequality that prevent people from getting those opportunities. So, you know, ensuring that children are given the tools and opportunities to prepare to contribute to society in a wide range of ways, to live in places where the soil and the groundwater won't kill you because it hasn't been cleaned up, right? To provide access to health care, addiction therapy, mental health counseling. Sometimes the worst threats come not from without, but from within. Being afraid of foreigners undermining democracy is easy looking at the ways our own country, our own states, our own laws have undermined voter participation and engagement, that's much harder. 
Uh, my name is Pippa Holloway, and I'm a professor of history at Middle Tennessee State University. I'm originally from Virginia, and I, I'm a, I do scholarship and do research and write on Southern history, um, political history, the history of legal and political culture. Professor Holloway studies the history of voter disfranchisement in the United States, state and local laws that have stripped the right to vote from 6 million United States citizens. That's right, 6 million. Compare that to the handfuls of documented voter fraud instances, or even the hundreds of thousands allegedly influenced by Russian bots, or even hanging chads, 6 million citizens, one out of every 13 African Americans, have lost their voting rights. Now, the tradition of limiting citizenship based on conviction for a crime dates way back to ancient Greece and Rome, to English common law, but it's important to point out that in these early periods, this punishment, this loss of your right, voting rights for a crime were rare. They were usually reserved for the most serious crimes, and those crimes were pretty rare. Give me an example. Fact, Give me an example. Yes. It's England. It's the 17th century. What do yeah. I have to do to have my right to vote rescinded? Probably murder someone. Um, would be the most the most serious felony and the most common felony in those periods. And in fact, the kicker is that if you murdered someone, it would probably be a capital offense and you'd probably be executed. So your right to vote was really fairly minor compared to the fact that you're now about to lose your life. The punishment of stripping full citizenship was part of a system of legal ostracism and humiliation that might today strike us as inhumane. Those are, those are places in which punishments were also um, were done in terms of public humiliation. Right, so like you might be branded, branded you might right? be I mean, put in stocks. Yeah, yeah exactly. I've studied, I've studied, you know, England in the 17th century, as, as grand as it was, as much as it gave us, was a pretty grim place. Like you could have like your thumb cut off, your ear cut off, your ear bored, like marks, permanent marks, right? Right. And that also, you know, in addition to being humiliating um, and a kind of painful punishment, that was also a way of tracking it, right? right. So you would be able to know if you showed up to vote and you were missing your thumb or you had a (laughs) hole bored into your ear, um, it would be a way for them to be realize that this is someone that couldn't vote. So those marks on the body were an information system too. Right. And I'm not laughing at that because I'm sure many of my very common English ancestors may have been so marked. These ancient customs assumed formal legal power in the United States in the early 19th century, just about the time when states were writing laws about who could vote. That was mostly white male property owners. So in the 1810s, 20s, and 30s, most states that write constitutions that um, specify electoral limitations have in there a provision that says you can't vote if you've been convicted of a serious crime. They define that different ways because it's kind of a different legal language. Some of those early states did, I think, say felony. Sometimes they would say misdemeanors or high misdemeanors or high crimes and misdemeanors Mm. or... Um, infamous offenses um, is another terminology they used. So they were they used various terms, um, legal terms from that period, which basically said really serious crimes. And implied in that was pretty rare crimes. So it would be murderers. Yeah, murder, treason, um, okay. crimes against elections were very ah. very common. Um, so people that violated election laws, um, pr- perjury, bribery, um, a lot of these um, initial disfranchising um, provisions 
were about serious crimes, but actually more often about crimes that involved serious levels of deceit. How many citizens lost franchise under these early 19th century laws? Less than 1%, Professor Holloway believes, but that changes, really changes, in the 1860s. The Civil War is over. Um, with the 14th, the 14th Amendment is about to be passed. There's a definite understanding that African Americans are going to be fighting for um, and probably getting the right to vote in most, if not all, Southern states. And so white Southerners um, who were desperate to stop this um, kind of came up with a plan, and it was a plan to get around the limitations or the requirements of the 14th Amendment and then the 15th Amendment. So we're going to have these constitutional provisions that say all men get to vote. And they're looking for ways around this. And one of the craziest stories I heard that really helped me as a researcher when I came across this story, helped me understand really what was going on here, huh. comes out of North Carolina in 1866. Um, and in 1866, right before the first election, so there's going to be an election in which African-Americans get to vote for the first time. Um, and on the eve of that election, a group of white Democrats um, undertook a campaign of mass whippings of African-American men in order to disfranchise them. And so basically they said, we're going to accuse African-American men of having, of having committed a crime. The punishment for this crime of larceny is going to be a whipping. And this is during Reconstruction, right? So there's Reconstruction officials from the U.S. government on the ground there, and they write about this to Washington, D.C. They send letters to Washington, D.C. describing what's going on. And they say, you know, this is going on all over the state. They're rounding up black men, um, claiming that they had convicted a crime, uh, committed a crime of larceny, and then whipping them in order to stop them from voting. Um, and this was celebrated by the people that were doing it. They basically said, this is great. We figured out a way around the Constitution. We're just going to whip people to stop them from voting. Um, and it was decried by Reconstruction officials as well as African-Americans and sympathetic whites in North Carolina as saying, wow, this is this is nuts. They're um, they're punishing people with a whipping in order to stop them from voting. So this for me wow. was kind of <laughs> sort of one of the smoking guns that I found in my research. Yeah. Because it was evidence that this not only that disfranchisement for crime um, was a technique used to target African-Americans, but it was used in the very first election after the Civil War. Okay. So before literacy tests, before poll taxes, before anything else, the first strategy they turned to was accusation of crime and punishment, and punishment with violence. Well, and punishment, you know, it kind of goes back to what you were uh, recalling from earlier European history, right? That public humiliation and even physical marking was a part of setting off classes of people as not entitled to participate fully as citizens, right? I mean, this is these whippings were public, right? Um, yeah, sure, they would have been absolutely public. And coming out of the early 19th century and then coming coming out of Europe was this idea, and I'll try to explain this succinctly, that you lose your right to vote, not necessarily under these old laws because you're a bad person. You committed a crime, you're a bad person, therefore you shouldn't vote. That's our assumption of why this happened. But in fact, the subtext to a lot of that was more that you have been punished in an infamous way. You've been humiliated by the punishment that you've received, be it branding, be it put in the stocks in early yep. modern Europe, be it a whipping in the United States. And that punishment lowers you below the level of citizen and prevents you from voting. Beyond the legalistic question of who should have the right to vote, 
Disfranchisement carried profound social, personal, and civic dimensions as well. Criminal accusation, public humiliation, whipping, disfigurement. Disfranchisement became a way to mark some people as belonging to an outcast. Just as losing the right to vote um, is matters and is both a product of and a symptom of your exclusion from society, so too does voting give you an opportunity to perform your citizenship, to celebrate your citizenship, and to function as a citizen. In the last decades of the 19th century, during Reconstruction, states with large African-American populations used legislation to grow the number of people, primarily poor African-Americans, who could be marked as outcast. And what Southern states do, or many Southern state legislatures do, is figure out that they want to they want to apply these laws broadly. They want to find a way to take away the right to vote for a lot of African American men, and so they they do two things that are related. In many states, they lower the bar for what crime is a felony. They lower the bar. Um, so with larceny, um, if you steal something, whether it's a misdemeanor or a Felony depends largely on the value of what you steal, right? So in many southern states, they drop the amount of – they drop the value of what you have to steal in order for it to be a felony. Um, and probably the most famous of these is Mississippi's pig law of 1876 that says that the theft of any livestock basically is a felony. A pig, a cow, a sheep, a lamb, or a goat, that's, that's a felony. So many southern states drop the bar for felony um, and to include small agricultural crimes as felonies. Fast forward almost 100 years. The civil rights movement and civil rights legislation tackled a number of barriers to voting, but not felon disfranchisement. Not yet. We didn't at that time have the system of mass incarceration that we have today. So in 1960, the number of people disfranchised for a prior conviction of a crime was less than 2 million, probably you know, 1.5, 1.75 million. Um, today, we're over 6 million, well over 6, we're just over 6 million. So the problem wasn't as large in the 1960s. Um, what we, what happens in the 1980s and 1990s and the 2000s is we dramatically increase the number of people that are convicted of crimes and incarcerated for crimes. And that means that the number of people who were disfranchised for the conviction of a crime has also increased dramatically over the past couple of decades. So it gets on the radar of civil rights organizations as it becomes a bigger problem. Which brings us to today and to the 6 million people, or 2.5% of the U.S. population, disfranchised, including some people who have completed their prison sentences. In some states, disfranchisement rates are as high as 7%. In Florida alone, 1.5 million incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people are disfranchised. Right. So the top 10 states with the highest rates of felony disfranchisement are mostly in the South. Um, the number one state is Florida, um, where over 10 percent of the population can't vote due to the prior conviction of a crime. Uh, Mississippi, Kentucky, Virginia, Alabama, Tennessee are your top top states. So this is um, largely, although not exclusively, of course, a southern problem. The other thing you'll note from that list is several of the states on that list are what we today call purple states, right? So Florida and Virginia are two of the most hotly contested states in terms of statewide elections, presidential, gubernatorial, and Senate elections. And those are the states with um, two of the highest um, levels of felon disfranchisement. One of the most powerful elements of Professor Holloway's research is her look into archives of petitions for franchise restoration. 
So in the late 19th century, people that are trying to get their votes back had to literally write out a petition and get signatures proving or demonstrating that they should be able to vote again. And the the, the archives of these petitions are incredibly moving for a couple of reasons. Um, I found um, efforts by people that were extremely poor. Um, to gather up the money required to pay the court fees. You know, every time you go to court, you have to pay a certain amount of money. So um, people that were sharecroppers, people that were tenant farmers coming up with two, three, four dollars in the late 19th century, that's not a small amount of money, particularly for people that are operating largely in a cashless economy. So true. Um, I found petitions from people that are illiterate that signed it with an X um, mm-hmm. to say they still wanted the right to vote. And then also just the narratives of what people talked about when they wanted to vote. They would say things like, you know, I want to be able to vote so that I can show my family that I'm a decent man. Um, I want the right to vote so that my neighbors will look upon me with the, as a person of dignity. So for them, um, that the voting, as I said earlier, was not just about your ability to shape political outcomes, but also about how you function as a member of the community. And you can really see that in these early petitions. And one of the reasons I think that's important to talk about is when you talk about felon disfranchisement today, a lot of people will say, ah, oh, those are people that probably don't want to vote anyway. You know, someone who's going to commit a crime, someone that's going to get locked up. How interested in political participation might they be? And the answer is very, um, that hmm. people that have prior convictions vote at basically, when given the opportunity to, vote at about the same rate as any other member of their demographic. Decency, dignity, community, beyond electoral politics, beyond red and blue, winners and losers, bots and data, there's a heart and soul to voting. And the systematic exclusion of people who run afoul of the law is quantifiably the greatest threat to democratic engagement. What would it look like to begin to regenerate democratic engagement? How do we understand the heart and soul of voting and begin to restore its human dimensions? Data can tell us what precincts we need to work in if we want to change electoral outcomes. But if we want to think deep about the human dimensions of our complicated democracy, we should probably talk to a poet. I am Honore Fanon Jeffers, and I teach at University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. It's the flagship uh, university. Professor Jeffers is the 2018 winner of the Harper Lee Award, a Lifetime Achievement Prize for Alabama writers named after the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. It's a prize awarded to writers who tell hard truths, as Professor Jeffers has in her five books of poetry. She sees and names dimensions of human experience that are very meaningful, but not immediately apparent. Professor Jeffers grew up in a home where voting mattered. Her father was an Ivy League-educated poet, activist, and academic, an Alpha Phi Alpha. Her mother, a working-class Georgia girl who made her way to Spelman University. I remember every time we went to the football game, God, it was so embarrassing. When they played the national anthem, Mama and Daddy would stand and raise their feet. She grew up in Durham, North Carolina in the 1970s, which was at the time a hotbed of activism, she recalls. It was all of these race men, mm-hmm. okay, women in Durham. And they weren't having it, okay? They were not having people taking their power. They would put together um, cultural events, right? 
poetry readings and, you know, they would go to jazz concerts and different things like that. But I remember because they would drag me along because they couldn't, you know, too cheap to pay for a babysitter. Mm-hmm. And I remember <laughs> that there was... <laughs> That they, but my sisters could stay at home by themselves, right? Because they were older. So they would drag me to these places. And there would always be some dude with, you know, a ragged afro, you know. And they would be talking about power and the community. And it would, and, and uh, you know, ultimately voting would come up. When Professor Jeffers was young, her mother, who was something of a political mover and shaker, would dress her up neatly, her hair in two long braids down her back, and take her door-to-door registering people to vote. And neither Professor Jeffers nor the people she canvassed ever forgot their interactions. And I remember when I went to Durham, people still remembered me. Hmm. They, They remembered me. They would say stuff like, why you cut all off that long, pretty hair? Why you cut that long, pretty hair? But I remember, um, you know, so it was, it was, and that really stuck with me. I was thinking about Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. um, last night. You know, it really stuck with me um, in the same way, you know, going down south with mama, you know, the land and all of that. There are these sort of moments, right? To this day, for her, Voting is not about some solo step into a cardboard booth, an abstract obligation, or data points on a map. It's about connectedness, honor, belonging, and the power that comes from them. But I, I never really, I never really thought of poor people as not having power, because I remember that these these poor black folks, when they got out to vote in Durham. It was something to behold. Getting people out to vote was a small part of just a larger ongoing effort to collect power on the terms that were available to black communities. So like cultural Mm -hmm. power, relational power, self-esteem, pride, beauty, you know, and to work from. and, And if all that is happening then you, it's easier to get people to vote, yeah? It's oh, easier. yeah. I mean, you know, you always had food yeah. whenever, right? Yeah. Um, and the whole thing about the black bourgeoisie that I love, right, was that they were there with those brothers, mm-hmm. with those ragged afros mm-hmm. and the dashikis, and they were working together. Mm-hmm. And that was something that, like this, you know, I'm not trying to say it was a Shangri-La, right? I mean, certainly, no. you know, you know, the brothers with the ragged afros were brown skin, dark brown skin. Many of them came from the hood, different things like that. And then you saw the black bourgeoisie, and they were all married to ladies that looked, you know, near white or white. And so there was colorism and there was all of that. But we, but that was put aside, mm-hmm. all of that class stuff, in order to make sure that, you know, we, we didn't get another Nixon in office, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so it, it was, you would have food there. You know, there would be, 
there would be, um, you know, potlucks. And mama was always frying. <laughs> mama was always frying some chicken. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there would be, you know, she would make a cake. She would make pound cake. She would do all this kind of stuff. Sometimes there'd be collard greens. Um, you would always have a preacher or three. I wanted to hear her perspective as a poet deeply rooted in Alabama on voting and power and the 2017 Senate elections in Alabama, which had the nation transfixed by the victory of Democrat Doug Jones over Republican Roy Moore, transfixed especially by extraordinary turnout efforts in the state's rural African-American communities, an effort led in large part by African-American women. It was recognition long overdue, but maybe it was a little distorted too, reflecting longstanding stereotypes in American culture. As if it wasn't really about hard work and about something deeper, as if it was just naturally here to take care of America's mess, black women, right? <laughs> well, you know, that's what it is, right? It's all about the breast milk, you yeah. know? It's all, it's all about the breast milk. It's all about... We're the- in a mess. Please fix it. Right. Poor rural women in Alabama. Please, it's you. Please, mama. Right. Right. Because that's a role that black women have inherited. And that does not mean that I discount that role, even though I'm a child-free woman. What the elections finally made visible, Professor Jeffers says, is a commitment to everyday work that suffuses black communities and institutions in places like Alabama. You know, and I remember when I taught in Alabama, I taught at Talladega College for two years. That's my alma mater. And I remember I was like, um, I will give you extra credit if you, if you bring your I voted sticker. And it's a commitment that has suffused these communities for a long time. And black women have been getting out the vote for a really long time. I mean, people deify, you know, Miss Fanny, Fanny Lou Hamer. Um, I'm not sure she shouldn't be deified. You know, I love me some some Miss Fanny, but but Fanny Lou Hamer uh, never tried to pretend like she was the only black woman doing that. Okay. I think the difference is now that black women are insisting on their faces being out there, but they have always worked in the shadows, right? If you have, I mean, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting about Selma, right, that movie Selma by Ava DuVernay, and Ava DuVernay's sister, you know, lives in, in Alabama. And one of the things about that movie is that you saw probably for the first time women other than Rosa Parks being depicted, right, out there, right? But there's that one scene that I found very interesting, when they show up, Dr. King and his, you know, his, his crew, they show up to a guy's house and his, and, and his wife is there in her, you know, June Cleaver outfit and she's making chicken, 
you know, medicine is not just, uh, you know, uh, biological. It's somebody who can bring the people together. And so when we see these women, you know, making the food, doing things, because people show up for food, okay? It, it, it's all well and good for the guy that's there, you know, you know, doing his thing and peacocking. But if ain't but two people in the room, he peacocking to himself, right? But the women, the women are making the food and guilting their men. You know you need to be at this meeting. You know you need to write. So what, what we're seeing is simply women coming from the background to the forefront. But those women have always been there. Something that you said that I really want to acknowledge is, you know, now they are insisting, and correct me if I'm getting, if I'm paraphrasing you wrong, is that they're coming out of the background and insisting on being seen and being seen mm-hmm. as political actors when before we mistook that as just care work. Yeah. Just housekeeping, just, just, you know, domesticity, just what, what women do, let alone what black women have done in the service of white people. And to realize that that's actually when black women do that for black communities, that's political work. That's political work. So it sounds like you're saying that when someone goes and votes in as part of an African-American tradition of voter mobilization, it's an expression of selfhood, right? It's not like expression of culture and expression of history. Yes. The biggest thing that I do, even when I know living in the state of of Oklahoma, right. when I vote, it's like spitting in the wind and it coming right back on me. Right. That's because right. Because this is a red state, but I vote because people died mm-hmm. so that I could vote. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to get cute. Because I'm going to be a one of only five black people in the line and I'm representing my people. Mm-hmm. So I got to beat my face and I got to have on a cute outfit and some cute shoes and some earrings so I can go stand in front of, you know, in the middle of all these unfriendly white people. Mm-hmm. And they and I'm the only one they going to ask for ID from. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then and then I'm liable to be somebody gonna ask me, is this my family member, the other black person in line that always <laughs> and I'm like, Lord Jesus, you know, and but you know, prayer helps, right? You know, so I, I wrap myself in prayer, but I have to do it in the name of the ancestors, right? In the name of many of them that we do not know their names that died. And that's what my parents would always talk about. That was always in the room. Medicine, bringing people together, showing up, pride, dignity, sacrifice, wearing your Sunday best and going door to door or to the polls, ancestors, being seen, expressing personhood, expressing history, expressing power, work, courage, Heart, hard discussions, and quality proteins. And banana nut muffins that you bring to the coffee clutch, not going to get it. You got to do a lot more work than good coffee 
fair trade coffee and banana nut muffins that you bring. We, we need to up the game and bring our, our special proteins. We'll bring yeah, our proteins it. and y'all bring that's your perfect. proteins. Right, 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 right. Make a, yeah. a delicious, uh, 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 I'll make a poached salmon. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing, you know, they got to understand, you know, it's, it's um, you know, simply our being sweet to each other or even when we love each other. Yeah. Right? Even when we love each other. Sometimes hard discussions have to happen. And here's the hard discussion Professor Jeffers would want us to have. Research shows that the greatest threat to democratic engagement may be that we are more preoccupied with election security than we are with mending and building our civic relationships. When we see only data points, when we see only enemies, that's when we should worry. That's when we become vulnerable, not to bots, not to fake news, not to fraud, but to the social erosion of the democratic project. What if the only thing we have to fear is fear itself? In part three of this episode, we'll bring together the -the on-the-ground voter protection and registration advocates with the experts for a good conversation about what democracy really looks like. Professor Pippa Holloway's most recent book is Living in Infamy, Felon, Disfranchisement, and the History of American Citizenship, available from Oxford University Press. Professor Honoré Jeffers is the author of five books of poetry. Her most recent, The Glory Gets, published by Wesleyan University Press. This is American Beauty. I'm Joanna Brooks. Please stick with us. Subscribe, share, rate, and review today at iTunes. Follow us on Twitter and Insta at underscore Joanna Brooks. Check in at AmericanBeautyPodcast.com. Thanks to Rachel Taylor for sound production, K-Studio for brand design, and to all the women doing the work.